Hello and welcome to. Didn't like that. No. Hello. Okay. Go on. Hello, welcome to the Irish Mythology Podcast Sound Special. I'm Marcus O'Hishkin. And I'm Stephanie Nihirni, and I dislike puns. <laughs> <laughs> and in a bit of a departure from our usual show, we are going to be focusing on not one particular story in this episode but on an old Irish seasonal festival that inspired many, many stories and is now celebrated around the world. We are, of course, talking about the Festival of Samhain, or more particularly, the Eve of Samhain, Ihahauna. Which is actually better known around the world as Halloween, and sometimes, to the annoyance of Irish people, Samhain. Never, ever say that. That is not how it's pronounced. Please, for the love of Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, I implore you. Pronunciation sometimes crops up in popular culture, particularly American film and television, mm-hmm. and marks for effort, I suppose, for trying to include Irish culture. But you know, as you said, that's not how, how it's pronounced. And were you saying that it was in the recent reboot of Sabrina the Teenage Witch? It was actually. I was mad excited that they were doing a reboot of Sabrina the Teenage Witch and I got I can't remember whether it was the first or the second episode it's pretty quickly into it and there was a a scene where they said Sam Hain and I just thought no this is enough for me (laughs) do you know what it was it was the same when I watched Grey's Anatomy and I watched Grey's Anatomy up to the point where they brought someone in and they had a bomb inside them and I thought no I can't deal with this. And when they said Sam Hain in Sabrina the Teenage Witch, it was exactly the same. And I thought, no, get up the art. Not doing that. Oh, God. And the cat couldn't talk either. That that was enough for me when I found that they didn't have Salem, the talking cat. That was yeah, sure. that's the only reason I What's watched it. What's the point? Has yeah. it been cancelled? I think it has, actually. But anyway, that uh, pronunciation was also used in the film Halloween 2. It was where your man, Michael Myers, had written Samhain on the walls in blood. And I think it was one of the cops that was investigating who was calling it Sam Hain. Anyway, enough of that. So we will be talking about the history, myth and folklore of the season, paying particular attention to a being called the Puka and finding out why you shouldn't eat blackberries after Iha Hauna. Or our pre-Christian ancestors, the year was punctuated by seasonal festivals. This is often referred to as the Wheel of the Year. In Neolithic times, and that's the late Stone Age, so you're talking you know, 6,000 to 4,000 years ago, based on the evidence we have from archaeology, the main festivals seem to have been the two solstices and the two equinoxes. Now, the winter solstice, which occurs on or either side of the 21st of December, is the shortest day of the year, and the summer solstice around the 21st of June is the longest. Then the two vernal equinoxes in mid-March and mid-September, respectively, have roughly equal hours of light and dark. Not exactly, but roughly. Sometime later, and it's hard to pin down because there is very little in the way of textual evidence, the dates of the main festivals changed to what we call the quarter days, better known as Imbolc or Bridget's Day on February the 1st, Bialtana on the 1st of May, Lunasa on the 1st of August, and then Samhain on the 1st of November. This could have taken place any time between the Bronze Age and the coming of Christianity, but popular belief associates it with the coming of Celtic culture, which is generally believed to have occurred around 500 BC. But to reiterate, we actually don't know 
any of this because there are no written records. And probably, probably the earliest surviving written mention of Samhain is in the 10th century CE saga, The Wound of Emer, where Emer herself mentions Samhain as being one of the quarter days. The celebration of these festivals actually started the previous night. Bonfires were lit, feasts were prepared, and the celebration lasted from sunset to sunset. So, Iha Hauna, Samhain night or Samhain eve, occurs on the 31st of October, which is why Halloween occurs on that day. And in addition to the spooky stuff we associate with Halloween today, Samhain marked the begin- beginning of winter, or the dark half of the year. This is when the cattle were brought in from the fields to winter indoors, mirroring Bialtana on the 1st of May when they were taken out of the sheds and put out to pasture. And because of that, it's worth noting that in the time that these festivals were first celebrated, the importance of any individual festival, similar to the importance of any individual god, might have been dependent on your profession. So those who raised cattle would likely have seen Bialtana and Samhain as the most important, while Imbolc and Lunasa corresponding to the time you would start sowing seeds and the beginning of harvest, respectively, were probably important to those who grew crops. Though Samhain was always about more than just the beginning of winter, it was also the night when the veil between our world and the other world was at its thinnest, allowing the dead to return and the fairy folk, including their worst elements, to freely roam the earth. If what Halloween means to you is ghosts, monsters, horror films, costuming and carving a face into a large round fruit or vegetable, then you might have more in common with the ancient Irish than you think. Of course, the telling of scary stories about mischievous fairy folk and the reanimated dead by storytellers was more common in those days than watching a horror flick with your friends, but it fulfilled the same purpose. Now, those stories contained a ghastly cast of ghoulish beings that you might not recognise by their names, but if you look a bit more into it, you'll see something very similar to the zombies, vampires, werewolves, ghosts, and malevolent beings that we celebrate on Halloween. For example, there was a class of being called the Slushi, otherwise known as the fairy host. Now, despite the name, they weren't proper fairy folk. These were the restless dead who weren't allowed into the halls of the gods. And in Christian times, that was transferred to they didn't qualify for entry into heaven, but weren't bad enough to be condemned to hell. But um, they are sometimes described as flying in flocks like birds. But in some stories, such as The Adventures of Nera, which we actually cover in our Patreon bonus episode over at patreon.com forward slash Irish mythology podcast, they are described as jittering, stumbling corpses, roaming the earth very much like zombies or even the army of the dead in Game of Thrones. So in the Fenian cycle in Irish mythology, that's the collection of stories involving Fionn McCool. Eilin, a malevolent being from the underworld, comes to Tara every Samhain and burns it to the ground. The boyhood deeds of Fionn says that the she, these are the fairy mounds or portals to the other world, were always open at Samhain. It tells us that the High King of Ireland hosted a great gathering at Tara each Samhain, but each year the fire breather Island emerges from the other world and burns down the Palace of Tara after lulling everyone to sleep with his music. So one Samhain, young Fionn McCool 
obtains a magic spear that lets him defeat the enchantment and stay awake while he slays Alan, for which he is made the leader of the Fina. And this is a story that's really in the Dragon Slayer tradition. You have the old Babylonian myth of Marduk slaying Tiamat, Sigurd and Thor in Norse mythology both slay dragon or serpent type creatures, and of course then you have St. George. There's also a vampire story, and actually the Mother Folklore podcast did a whole episode on this two Halloweens back. But anyway, it takes place in County Derry, where there's a particularly cruel chieftain called Orotok, or Orotok. Uh, the people he ruled over wanted to get rid of him, but they were so terrified that they dared not do it themselves. So they persuaded a chieftain from a neighbouring territory to do it for them. So this chieftain slays Aratok and buries him standing up far away from any settlement and the people he ruled over are absolutely delighted to be rid of him. But that's not where the story ends. Dun, dun, dun. Sorry. <laughs> Aratok returns from the dead, demanding blood from his subjects to drink. So the chieftain kills him again. But again he returns. So the chieftain goes to, and in some versions this is a druid, and in others it's a priest. And the priest, or druid, tells him that Aratok is not really alive, but that through his devilish arts he has become one of the Naive Marv. The druid, or priest, then gives the chieftain instructions on how to deal with Aratok. He tells him to, to slay him with a sword made of the wood of a yew tree and bury him upside down. Actually, do you know what's interesting? There is, I'm pretty sure it's in uh, Gormanston College. I'm just going to Google it real quick. I should have done this earlier. Uh, Gormanston College, yew trees. Yeah, okay, so look, we'll put this. If you're in the vicinity, well, obviously, if you're in the five kilometre radius of Gormanston, I suppose, this point. Or you're you're listening to this sometime in in the future when we've overthrown the coronavirus. Yes, and the state has collapsed. In Gormanston College in County Meath, there is a thing called the Yew Tree Walk. And actually, if you Google, we'll put a picture of it in the show notes. But when you go in, it's very Blair Witch Project. It's super creepy and would definitely be a good spot for a Halloween walk. Like, I mean, you'd be terrified, you know, by the time you come out of it. But, like, it's very cool looking. Yeah, it does look cool, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, the yew tree. Pretty creepy looking sometimes. And the druid or priest had said, yeah, slay him with a sword made of the wood of a yew tree and bury him upside down. Now, Navarov translates as undead which, along with the blood drinking and using wood to kill him, puts us in mind of later stories of vampires. And the historian Bob Curran makes the case in an article in the summer 2000 issue of History Ireland, which we'll link in the show notes, that this story was actually a big influence on Bram Stoker's Dracula. Now, one of the most famous Irish creatures associated with this time of year is called the Puka. And I suppose... The closest modern popular monster to the puka would be a werewolf, but it's it's not a wolf and it's not going to eat you. It, its speciality is more causing mild annoyance. The puka Are you a puka? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. The puka often appears as a man. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. Show me your hooves. <laughs> Go on. Or something closely resembling a man engages you in conversation, which 
is usually annoying, and then transforms into a creature. Sometimes a horse or a goat, or sometimes with the body of a horse and the head of a goat, or some other diabolical combination, like the head of a hare and the bottom of a chicken, I don't know. It could be anything like that. Yeah. Uh, do you know, actually, when I was really young, I was like very, very small. I was obsessed with the puka because I had this book that I got. I won an art competition in school and I got a book voucher with it. And t- I got two books and one was... I can't remember the name of it. It was a big yellow book though and it had like the history of like fashion through the ages, you know. And But the other book was a book called Leprechaun's Legends and Irish Tales which is still in my mother's house but she denies that it's there. Uh, (laughs) But it had really fantastic and very, very beautiful illustrations and I'm not sure that it was aimed at children at all but I was absolutely obsessed with this book. Sounds deadly. You'll have to try and liberate it. Oh, definitely. Like, 100%. Uh into the attic someday which is a work um but yeah it has this it has some really really incredible illustrations and that was the first time i heard of the puka and yeah yeah, i was fascinated and terrified but i suppose if you're kind of reeling from hearing that the the puka you know might present itself as something that's like a combination of a horse and a goat or you might also be terrified to learn that the puka will actually scoop you up on his back and take you on a terrifying ride all over the countryside and sometimes to the other world and back. And apparently the only way to get the puka to throw you off his back is if you are wearing spurs that you can dig into his sides. So maybe consider wearing a pair of those if you're heading out for a walk on Halloween night. And as ever, when it comes to anything to do with Irish folklore, there's a gansey of great stories involving the puka on dukas.ie. And I'm just going to read this one here. It's from Brachna Helva in County Westmeath. Long ago, there lived in Loch Valley a trickster named Paddy Ward. He was a great sportsman and attended gatherings of every kind. One Halloween, he was coming home from a wedding with two or three other men. When passing Killen Graveyard, his comrades dared him to go into the graveyard. It was two o'clock. Paddy said he would walk two rounds of it. The conversation previously had been on ghosts. Paddy went in, but on getting halfway around, he was knocked down by the puka. The puka, in spite of Paddy's struggles and shouts of terror, took him on his back and soared into the air with him. His companions lost no time in running home. Paddy on the puka's back was taken for a ride over the hill of Ishnach, the hill of Skay, the hill of Nakasta, and in Paddy's opinion, over every hill in Ireland. In very quick time, he was landed at his own doorstep, much earlier than his comrade's arrival. There they found him, blubbering like a child. He was very exhausted and didn't leave his bed for three weeks, and never after that did Paddy venture out after ten o'clock. Poor Paddy. Sounds terrifying. Um, But, you know, an encounter with the puka isn't always a negative experience. And this story comes from Partine in County Clare. There was a great hurler coming home late one night. As he was passing by a churchyard gate, he saw a puka up on the bush. And he said to him, you are the very man I am looking for. Up with you on my back. He kept going with them till they arrived at a fort in Tipperary. He knocked on a large stone and a door opened and let them in. Hurlers from Munster and Connacht were inside preparing for a match. 
they asked the man to referee the match. And when it was over, the puka gave him a bag of gold and he took him back again to his own house on his back. Now, yeah, so not a bad skin after all. I'm hoping to go out for a wee dander on Halloween night and bump into one of these moneyed pukas. Um... Maybe maybe if you if you're able to talk about the hurling, you know, he that's when you get yeah. <laughs> not much hurling at the moment anyway. Uh but yeah, and you know, interestingly, there is also a version of the puka in Scottish folklore and but it's called the bogle. And here we have a short recording from Kirsty McArthur, who's based in Glasgow, to tell you all about it. So there's an area called Bogleston in Port Glasgow and Way back when, there was a story that the men from Kelmacomb would walk all the way up from Kelmacomb through to Port Glasgow in Greenock to get a be- to get a bevy in because in Kelmacomb you couldn't drink; it was a dry town. And on the way, they would pass the area that's now known as Bogleston because there was a bogle stone where, or the bogle stain, even. Um, and the bogle would sit on top of the stone and he would basically just scare the bejesus out of everyone. And the old wives would say that the bogle couldn't possibly have been a demon or an evil spirit because he was stopping all the men from getting steam and drunk. So uh, he was sort of seen, the bogle was sort of seen as more of a, like an impish kind of cheeky wee guy that, uh, was there to basically just ruin people's days and be a bit naughty. So yeah, it's a good story. Isn't that really interesting? It is, yeah. yeah. So thanks so much to Christy for um, for telling us that story. And also, I just want to flag Christy's Instagram account because she does really incredibly beautiful illustrations uh, that I think everyone should go and have a look at we'll put the ta- or we'll put the the details of her insta account in the show notes but if you want to take a look straight away uh you can find her at instagram and then her username is christina so it's like the scottish gaelic spelling so it's c-h-o-i-r-s-t-a-i-d-h-n-a dot jpeg so i won't repeat it you can rewind me if you didn't get that but yeah I would definitely suggest having a look at her work because it's very very cool she's super talented and thanks again for yeah actually her work's really good I um, yeah, thought it was anyway it's really nice I like the colour scheme anyway um, I suppose now's as good a time as any to talk about some old sound customs because there's an interesting one involving the puka and blackberries so blackberries known as uh, smeraduva in Irish are at their best from mid-August to mid-September. Something the well, very well-known Irish poet Seamus Heaney alludes to in his poem. I probably sound very disdainful when I mention Seamus Heaney. It's just every Irish politician, I think, for the past <laughs> yeah. 500 years has talked about Seamus Heaney or mentioned, referenced one of his lines. But anyway, look, he has a poem, Blackberry Picking. We'd, pro- we'd probably be remiss not to mention it. But anyway, the line is, late August, I was going to try and do a shame scene, but anyway, I won't bother. Late August, given heavy rain and sun, for a full week, the blackberries would ripen. 
But if you wanted to hear Seamus Heaney voice doing it, there's a YouTube video where Seamus Heaney himself actually reads that poem, which I saw earlier. Do you know, I actually do like one of his poems. Uh, it's <laughs> No, no, it's just because I, I, stu- I studied this stuff at college and you kind of get, like, worn out. Um, took the good out of Seamus Heaney for you, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it did. The leaving search yeah. took the good out of Seamus Heaney for me. But um, I do like the one about the, you know, the... What's it called? The Tuckleish Man, is that what it's called? The Bog Body. Yes. It starts, someday I will go to Aris. That's true, yeah, yes. Yeah. It does go to Aris. Yes. Um, um, anyway, yeah, a lot of <laughs> folklore surrounds the timing of blackberry picking in Ireland, as people believed that they became inedible after St. Michael's Day, or Michaelmas, as it was called, on September 29th, or... The Old Michaelmas, which was October 11th, as this was the day that the devil was cast out of heaven only to land on a bramble bush. And that was awfully, an awful Ouch. unlucky thing to happen. But, um, curse, so he cursed the thorns which injured him, and then he supposedly contaminated the fruits by spitting or urinating on them. This raises a lot of questions about <laughs> the devil's bodily functions, but, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, well, there's a variation on this theme <clears throat> that blames the puka or puka nasmer, the blackberry smite, for rendering them unpalatable, I suppose, at this time. There's various, um, there are various versions of this story where, you yeah. know, in some versions they talk about how the puka would come out on Ihahauna and lick them. And then others, they would say that the puka did a wee yeah. on blackberries, so... And you know. a bit of a slime or something. <clears throat> yeah. But of course, as you were saying, um, now you can have them all year round because there's no puka in the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah. All of the... Yeah, everything you get in a super, supermarket is grand because there's no pookie beyond in the Netherlands, so that's fine. But I suppose... I'd, I mean, like, maybe this is a thing where it's sort of a, a bit of folk wisdom in you know they're not ripe after that time so don't eat I mean look if you're going blackberry picking I think the general rule is just to make sure that they're actually all black if they're not if they're still a bit red or whatever leave them they'll be no good for you and if there's slime on them leave them as well yeah because then the puka's been at them and you don't want that like um, but in Scottish mythology, it's the bogle who actually spits on the brambleberries to discourage their eating. Like the Irish puka, a bogle that is, you know, a freakish spirit who delights rather to perplex and frighten mankind than either to serve or seriously hurt them. And in a book called Popular Tales of the West Highlands, John Francis Campbell tells the story of a young baron of the Badenoch district of Scotland stumbling across a bogle with a red hand dripping with bramble juice and the baron reports the bogle for stealing fruit tout um, and the creature is punished but after receiving his punishment the bogle in his rage returns to the brambles and defiles them <laughs> it's very dramatic uh, it's very spiteful too yeah. the spiteful sprite yeah But anyway, whatever about checking to see if the blackberries are okay after Michaelmas, yeah, you definitely, definitely don't want to eat them after Samhain. Henry Morris wrote in 1915 in the Journal of the Louth Archaeological Society that nice ripe blackberries are sweet and palatable, but hungry boys and girls will eat blackberries that are neither sweet or palatable. However, 
after Iha Hauna, or Hallow Eve, no blackberries are eaten. And why? Because on that night, the puka goes abroad and crawls over the blackberries, covering them with an invisible slime. And where is the boy or girl who would eat a berry soiled with the puka's slime? The fact seems to be that blackberries after that date are stale and unwholesome, but the puka's slime is the great deterrent. It's not the rot. (laughs) No. I mean, it would put you off, wouldn't it? It would. But I don't know. I mean, look, do you know... There's someone out there for everything. I guarantee you there's someone out there who's going to be like, Puka Slime sounds class. <laughs> Get my coat and my berry bucket. Um, but look, Samhain customs weren't all to do with fruit picking or agriculture, though. And th- there's a lot of them that, though you might not recognise the names, will actually seem very familiar to you. Mumming and guising was a big part of Samhain going back to at least the 16th century and this involved costuming and going door to door singing or reciting poetry in exchange for food. Very, very like your modern day trick-or-treating. Or as it was called in Dublin. Oh, what my dad used to, yeah. my dad used to say, help the Halloween party. Yeah. What did you say in Navin? We didn't. We, we never did trick-or-treating. You dressed up already. Because but... Dylan Morn was right. There's no culture in Navin. <laughs> not the call, not the call. We, 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 did all the other, <laughs> we did all the other stuff. But sure. I don't know what was going on in your day, but there was, there was none of, nobody, nobody could afford to be giving away sweets back then. In my day, my mother put a bin bag on me and I was a witch <laughs> and you went to our store and you always got monkey nuts. It was always like nuts and you know, some mandarins or something. Yeah, we we would have had two p. Yeah, we would have had a few nuts, like monkey nuts and that in the house, and a few other harder nuts for me dad to crack for himself. Maybe a few fun sized bars or something. We didn't we didn't go knocking on doors though. So. There was one year that I had um because I had red tights for school and there was one year that my that I, I dressed all in red and had red face paint and I had little devil horns. But instead of like when people would say like, Oh, you look at this little devil, I would be like <laughs> I remember to my mom's my mom brought my mum and dad brought me to their friend's house down the road and I knocked on the door apparently I was only about six at the time and I was like, Let me in, let me in, it's Satan at the door That's <laughs> <laughs> what happens. Yes. Give a child all these strange yeah. books. Anyway. Um But yeah, so anyway, the point was, right, all that stuff very like modern trick or treating. But I suppose the costumes wouldn't have been like today's and there'd been nobody dressed up as maybe sexy Finn McCool or sexy Morrigan or anything like that. (laughs) And as you're saying, they're about the bin bags. Oh, I thought you were going to say, well, it depends on, you know, there's someone for everything. It depends on what your view (laughs) of sexy Morrigan would be. (laughs) I wouldn't be opposed to it. There you go. Mark Sohishkin from Irish Mythology Podcast will have his own... Sexy Morrigan OnlyFans account soon. <laughs> Stay tuned. More information on the Patreon. Someone um, out there will pay for that. <laughs> um, but sure, look, it's not that long since, you know, really all all you got actually was a bin bag with holes in it for your arms cut out. Or, you know, if you were real fancy, maybe a sheet. A, a sheet going spare. In the I know, I think you're just anticipating. <laughs> because one year, and you knew about this, one year, I was the envy of 
all the kids in the estate because my mother had an old bed sheet with a rip in it and she was going to throw it out so I got to be a ghost. Speaking of white sheets... <laughs> Go on. During the 19th century in the south of Ireland, the costumes worn included the Lar Vaughan or white mare, which was like a hobby horse and... A man basically, basically a man wearing a white sheet and would carry a decorated horse skull and he'd lead a group of young people around the countryside going from farm to farm, blowing on cow horns and a lot of sounds very pagan. It does. Sounds very... Did you bring that back actually? I'd be... I'd be well up for a bit of rambling around with a horse skull (laughs) and a stick. (laughs) Terrifying people. Yeah, that'd be a bit gas, actually. A um, few cans, horse and a stick, bonfire. Yeah. <laughs> Job done. Like Listeners in Wales actually might think that this sounds very similar, as it's quite similar to the Marilud, uh, which is also a hobby horse made up of a man under a white cloth carrying a decorated horse's skull. The big difference here, of course, is that the Marilud is carried around Christmas time. And of course we have the mummers yeah. and all of that jazz, which we will do a different episode yeah, on, around, on Wednesday. On, on, yeah, which is the day after Christmas Day, Stephen's Day as we call it here. Yeah. But anyway. Subscribe for that episode later. <laughs> so another thing that has become synonymous with Halloween is carving a face into a pumpkin and placing it and placing a lit candle inside it. And this is called a jack-o'-lantern. But pumpkins, of course, are not native to Ireland. And it's only a recent thing that you'd even see them in a supermarket here, be able to buy them. But the carving of jack-o'-lanterns... Okay, Methuselah. <laughs> I'm telling you, did it, I bet you did it not have pumpkins in the supermarket when you were at school. In my day. <laughs> I know there's actually a, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a bit of that in this episode. But it's true, it's true. Anyway, where was it? <laughs> Yeah, the carving of... No culture or pumpkins in Navin. They're both banned. Oh, my God. Go on. Do you, do you come and see the violence inherent in the system. Ah, oh, here, go on, will you? We're being oppressed. Anyway, the carving of jack-o'-lanterns has a long history in Ireland and Scotland. Over here, it was actually usually turnips that would be carved. Um, there's a folk tale related to this. And it involves a blacksmith. If you listened to our last episode, you will remember that blacksmiths in Ireland were believed to have supernatural powers and that there were spells to protect you from their magic. So this story probably has its roots in that belief. So an Irish blacksmith named Jack colluded with the devil and as a result was denied entry to heaven. But he wasn't sent to hell. He was actually condemned to wander the earth at night. So he asked the devil for some more light and the devil gave him a burning coal ember, which he placed inside a turnip that he had carved out. Yeah, and there's also a lot of Halloween games that were traditionally played in Ireland and a lot of them have survived to the present day or until fairly recently. There's, And I know you're going to slack me off now again, but anyway, there's quite a few of them that I would have played as a child. Talk us once. <laughs> anyway, sorry, go on. So, so there's Snapapple. This is, I've, when I, we were reading, I think this came from your notes, actually, the, the thing about Snapapple. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if we would have called it that, but it's the one where the apple is suspended from a bit of string and you had to try and get a bite out of it. A bit like 
I don't know if people remember swing ball. It's kind of like swing ball, and you didn't have a tennis racket. You ha- and yeah, the, the object was to bite the thing instead of swing ball. It around. Swing ball is a bit more vigorous. Th- I mean, I love your like <laughs> your idea of this as like um, oh god, what was that TV show where they all like jump off things and set fire to bits of themselves on MTV? What? You know? That- oh, oh, uh, jackass! Jackass! Yeah, <laughs> your version. Of, like sw- it's like swing ball with an apple flying around. You know. Um, uh. like I mean, actual snap apple is a bit more sedate. You know, it's like a, an apple and a string hanging from something in the roof. Like, oh, yeah, but like by the time you have a few goes of it, the thing is flying around. She's. Oh, do you know we're gonna have to do this on Halloween? <laughs> right. Anyway, then there's the um, maybe more familiar ducking for apples, which. Is basically it's a very similar concept. The apple is in a basin of water, and again, you have to try and get the bite out of it, um, and it's, it's not easy at all. You you were saying you saw something about a similar game involving a lit candle. Yeah, I saw this one on Ducas, and it involved. And there's actually a few references to the to this game. And when I was reading and doing the research for this, this this reference kept coming up about. Um, having a small wooden rod suspended from the ceiling in the shape of a cross that had a lit candle, like it had lit candles on one end and then pieces of, or, you know, an apple on the other. And then the rod is spun around, but the kids are blindfolded. No, there's some of them, in some of them, the references, they're blindfolded. And then in others, they have their hands tied behind their back, but they can see what they're doing. And I mean... It's anyway. There's there's a there's a photograph of it. I'm not. It's. I know it sounds mad. <laughs> why would you blind or you know? Why would you tie the hands of children and make them try and bite something where there were things on fire? I don't know. I mean, that's what passed for fun at the time. But there is there's actually a really brilliant photograph on the Ducas website, which we will link to in the show notes. So I do suggest that you have a look at that. And you know, if you're feeling real adventurous this Halloween, maybe, you know, have a go. Set up your own version <laughs> and send us your photos. Let us know how you but get do on. do not take this as us instructing you to do so, because it does sound like an awful health and safety risk. I, I wouldn't approve that now if I was a health, health and safety officer. It's health and safety gone mad. Ah, look, you'll be grand. Sure. <laughs> sure, look, no one in Dukas was saying, like, do you know, terrible things happen to these kids. Like, it'll be grand, you know. <laughs> it's Halloween. I mean, it's a bit of a fire hazard. And I suppose um, bit, there's actually, do you know, now that I think of it, there, there are actually lots of other... Uh, Halloween games that were that are there's actually a surprising amount of fire based Halloween games for children <laughs> in Irish in in like Irish customs right so there are other games where they would get monkey nuts and they would put them in the fire and sometimes they would have stories with them and one would you know when they put them in the a ring would or sorry a ring if like whichever of the nuts jumped, you know, when they get scorched yeah. or whatever, it like represented whether you would get married or not. Wait a minute, was there a difference in between the nuts? Well, yeah, when you put them down, you would say, "Oh, this is the man nut, and this is the woman." All right. 
And that's like, yeah, and I mean, there there are lots of those stories. I mean, yeah, there's there's an awful lot of that. And then like throwing nuts into the fire and, <laughs> you know, nuts jumping out and where they landed, all sorts of things. But like, yeah, lots of lots of fire based yeah. games. It was like when the, um, the was it ancient Rome or the or Greece, Greece, I think, where where the priest um, seers used to open an animal and throw the entrails and see where they landed. It's probably a bit like a less gruesome version of that. I just, you know what? I wish there was a way I could insert a gif into this because all I thought of was, you know, like that small, you know, that escalated quickly. <laughs> like, like throwing a few monkey nuts yeah. in the fire and you're there like, oh yeah, slaughtered was, animals, throwing entrails. It, it was the same um, kind of idea, do you know, as tea leaves as well it's all about where the thing lands and what the pattern is that's true but of course uh you know all of these fire hazards <laughs> uh no rundown of halloween customs would be complete without mentioning the bonfire and this is one custom that goes back to pre-christian times though in those days they had bonfires for all of the major festivals so they were particularly associated with bialtana on the first of may and also uh law La Eileon on the 24th of June, St. John's Day. Yes, isn't it? That's in the West. You would see, you know, there would be bonfires but, there. That's a separate yeah. festival though. But, but I mean, actually, it is it is a part of... I think somebody on Twitter informed me that somewhere in some small town or village in the Wicklow Mountains, they have the bonfire there on St. John's Day as well. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, I think there's probably a few places about, you know, that still have it, but... Uh, Cormac's glossary, which is attributed to attributed to Cormac McCullinan, a ninth, uh, a ninth or tenth century bishop who was also briefly king of Munster, double jobbing, uh, mentions druids lighting two bonfires and driving the cattle between them to protect them from diseases for the coming year. And also, after he died, he was also considered a saint in Ireland. I don't think he was officially canonised. You know, it's kind of the way if you're famous and you die, you become a saint. But anyway, he, he's in the list of Irish saints as well. Mm. So he, he did it all, really. But anyway, there's the odd place around the country where they still have um, bonfires at Bealton or Lunasa. But it's really Samhain or Halloween that the practice is most associated with here. And when I was a kid... There was fierce competition between the various housing estates in Navan to see who'd get to have the biggest fire. And there'd nearly be war over pallets and tires that you'd be, I suppose, robbing, I suppose, when you think about it. From, <laughs> from, 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 I mean, never thought of it like that at the time. They were just lying there, although on private property, but uh, building sites and industrial well, estates. Well, you know... <clears throat> To quote a friend, a good friend of ours, if they didn't want you to take them, they wouldn't have left them there. <laughs> but, uh, you know, look, uh, it was huge for us too. And I suppose there was always a great novelty. How times have changed, you yeah. know. When no, there was none of this crack of like talking about the environment or climate change when I was in secondary school because our great excitement was in Halloween, if someone gave you a sofa and you'd have the bonfire and you'd be there all night sitting on the sofa and then at the end, the fire would be going down and you'd put the sofa on. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, you know, yeah. springs sitting there God. for, yeah, yeah Jesus. And fires and everything, like, do you know? Oh, God, Jesus, no. The more successful your bonfire, the blacker the smoke. It was like we still didn't have a Pope, you know, <laughs> everywhere. Oh, you wouldn't get away with it now. Of course, all the places that we used to have bonfires on are all sort of 
they're all half built ghost houses in the states and stuff now, yeah. which are. Before we finish up, we better mention. We nearly forgot to mention the uh, Barnbrack. Yeah, we would. It would be remiss of us not to mention one of the. I suppose one of the main foods that are associated with Halloween in Ireland is the Barin Brack, or the Aran Brack, as some people refer to it. We as. would have called it the Barnbrack. Well, it was just a brack in yeah. our house. There was no notions, no, no, no notions. Well, well the brack it. would be one you could have any time of the year, but the barn brack was the, the Halloween one for us, anyway. Yeah, well, a brack, uh, for those who are unfamiliar with this, is a sort of a fruit cake. Yeah, but it's 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 like one that's almost bread. It's yeah, like bready cake. A bready cake. Uh, I'm going to say something very controversial. There's a version I can't remember. Is it? But anyway, I remember getting one time. Some fancy cinnamon brack. Mm. Sounds good. Not a traditional ingredient mm. of brack, I think. Some people would be appalled. But I thought it was lovely. But anyway, the point is, at Halloween, there are various things included in the brack that are not edible. <laughs> and they all symbolise something. So generally, when you buy a brack in the shop, there's a ring in it. And the tradition is that you know, in each house, everyone is caught in, you know, an equal slice of the brack. And whoever gets the ring will be the first at the table to marry. Um, And then there are other things that can be included in there. Um, Sometimes people will put in a pea. And if you got the pea, it meant that you wouldn't actually be married this year. I thought you were going to say... If you got the P, you got the secret. Oh my God. Do you know what? The second you said that, I knew the line that was coming. You're a gas uh-huh. ticket. Um, but anyway, yeah. So other things that can be included. A tiny piece of cloth. And sometimes, it depends now in some places, it, in, in some places it's viewed as being like an indicator that you're going to be quite impoverished in the forthcoming year. And then in other cases, in some parts of the country, whoever got the cloth was going to, was, you know, that was the person who was going to be a nun. And I suppose that was probably more prevalent in, in yeah. times of yore when, you know, <laughs> well, like, you know, there was, mm. you know, lots of people had a priest and a nun in the family. So it wouldn't yeah. have been, a, you know, well, all no, that unusual. Lots of people that would have been, <clears throat> yeah, if that's, if, if they had land. A bit of land, yeah, yeah, I suppose. Road frontage. Yeah. <laughs> but um, what else was in a brack? Uh, a thimble and a button. Um, and they both predict that you're going to have no luck on Tinder and you will remain single. <laughs> it's uh, a path to to loneliness and spinsterhood mm. <laughs> for some people. Um, and then <clears throat> what else? A sixpence was was something that would have traditionally been included, a coin, and that would promise riches for the future. And then a matchstick uh, sometimes would also be included. And what the matchstick represented was um, something that was possibly going to change from good to bad. I mean, there's a lot of really dark stuff. Yeah, and a lot of choking <laughs> hazards. So basically the, the brack, the barn brack is... A bread-like cake with choking hazards. Yeah, I mean, I guess so, right? But also, you would hope that people... I mean, people probably, you know, chewed their food. It's probably true. 
<laughs> you know, like, I mean, I've gotten the ring in a brack loads of times and managed not to swallow it. So, you know. Yeah, but if you were particularly hungry, you wouldn't know, like. I think that's projection. And then if you, if you got the, the match, maybe you could use that to light the candle for the... Oh, the, wait. Yeah, the, fire apple game. Or the fire apple game. Yeah. Actually, there's lots of there's lots of other Halloween games, and you know we don't have time to go into them today. But maybe at some stage we can do another well, Patreon episode. But I actually just want to to mention the saucer game because. Yeah, go on. In so there is a game just for people listening. There is another Halloween game that has where you would put three saucers of water. Uh, is this the one? Yeah, well, there's, there's a saucer of water, saucer of dirt. Yeah. And what's the other one? I can't remember what the third one was. But anyway, the saucer of water, if you put your hand, you're blindfolded. Yeah. The saucers were mixed, mixed around. If you put your hand into the water, you were going to go abroad. You were going to go probably yeah. to England for a bit of work. Yeah. But if you put your hand in the dirt, it meant you'd be buried by the buried end of the Buried by the end of Yeah. And children played these yeah. games. I can't remember what the other one was. Assume, I assumed it was you'd be married, probably. Anyway, but... What must it have been like growing <laughs> up as a child in Ireland and like, do you know, the but early you, 1900s where... But, well, statistically, those things were probably true, <laughs> do you know? <laughs> probably. Yeah, like it was yeah. grim. It was a gr- grim time. <laughs> You know, when you think back, like, to, uh, you know, fam- family trees and that, you're kind of going, oh, yeah, actually, that percentage of them probably did die when they were kids, like. Yeah, yeah. it's quite but we, sad. But we had that game, but there was no kind of, as far as I can recall, I no can't remember. Element, no. Well, no, I don't, I can't, I don't think there was divination involved in it. I think it was just, like, a, a creepy game, and... One year I was blindfolded. No cracking, laughing. Well, one year I was blindfolded and I put my hand into the saucer and something very weird and it just felt a bit like wet and different textures. Water. And Unfamiliar my with mother, it. No. Didn't wash the loves. And my nothing. mother uh, took the blindfold off and it was me Nana's false teeth that were in the thing. Oh my <laughs> God. Uh, she thought it was hilarious. I mean, it is hilarious, but also it's terrible. What age were you? I don't know. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Well, anyway, look. I think, uh, yeah, look, we could go on talking about sound and Halloween customs and childhood traumas all night, but you know, unfortunately, we have to call it a day. There is plenty left for next year's episode, anyway. Uh, there are a lot of very interesting accounts of customs, traditions and stories related to this time of year on Dukas.ie that are well worth reading. I love that website so much. And in case you're new to the podcast, we'll put some links in the show notes for you. If you live in Ireland, it's worth searching your local area to find out some local folklore on that website. And it would be really interesting to see how much of it has survived. So let us know. So if you haven't got enough of Samhain on the Irish Mythology podcast, sure head on over to our Patreon page and, and sign up there. We've got some bonus content and you can support our work by throwing us a few euro. And that's patreon.com forward slash Irish Mythology. And if you're new to the Irish Mythology podcast, check out some of our other episodes. This episode was a bit different to our regular shows where we adapt and retell stories from Irish mythology and then chat about their origins. 
and relation to other mythologies, old and new. And you can find us on Twitter at Irish Mythology P, on Facebook, Irish Mythology Podcast, on Instagram at Irish Mythology and online at irishmythologypodcast.ie. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or another platform that includes ratings and if you like the show, do us a favour and give us a five star rating. It really helps us build and reach a wider audience. So slong everybody and she will see you soon. And don't remember, if you're heading out on Halloween night, put your spurs on before you leave the house. Take a ride with the puka. See where you end up. Hopefully it's one of the moneyed pukas. And listen, if you're playing any of these games, I don't know, safety first. Have a fire extinguisher. Extinguisher? Extinguisher even. Uh, at the ready, Bunigui uh, Saltos. And we'll see you again next time on the Irish Mythology Podcast. Cheers. You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast, written, presented and produced by Marcus O'Hishkeen and Stephanie Hearney. Theme music by Damiano Baldoni, Celtic Warrior, on an attribution license.